Church, did you know the Lord is good and He is great? He's great. As a matter of fact, this morning in the passage of Scripture we'll be studying, we're going to see that the Lord in His goodness and His greatness has made a way for the impossible to become possible in us because of Jesus. And I just wonder, as you've entered this place, what that impossible thing is that you've carried into this room. Those promises that you hear the Bible say about joy unspeakable, about peace that surpasses understanding, about hope in the midst of a dark and fallen world, those things that sound maybe impossible for your circumstance. What would it look like if you believe that Jesus makes the impossible possible in your life? What is that miraculous work of Christ that you need done? I wonder if we could just bow our heads and take those impossible things, those places in our hearts that are hard to believe and just bring it before the Lord. Think of that place in your life right now, the place in your heart, your family right now, where you need Jesus to do what's impossible for you. Just confess it to the Lord. God, I feel this is impossible. And I need Jesus to do what I can't do. Would you ask him for faith that by his word, he'd open the eyes of your heart to believe the truth about Jesus. That he makes the impossible possible. Fathers, we sing these songs as we declare these truths. It thrills our hearts to say our, our God is great to the point that the day is coming where you're going to raise the dead to new life. And we will shout your praise and all of the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God, the way the waters cover the sea. But right now, Lord, for many of us, that's hard to believe. It feels just impossible. So God, as we bring all of that into this place, we just confess we need you. We need you to open your word to our understanding, to build faith in us where we struggle to believe. And Father, I pray that we would leave this place. And if one thing is clear, it would be that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is stronger than all of the weakness that we have in ourselves and all of the hardness that we face in our world. Lord, open our eyes to the truth about Jesus. I pray for those gathered in this place, those who are joining us online, that we would encounter Jesus today in the power of your Holy Spirit through the teaching of your word. And Lord, we know we're not the only church in town. And so Father, we pray for the other churches of this community, that they'd be filled with your spirit, the knowledge of the gospel. Pray for pastors to boldly and truthfully teach the word of God by your spirit's power and not their own ability. I pray specifically for Matt Jackson at First Baptist Church O'Galley. Lord, may he be used by you to bless your people. And may your people not only gather in the power of your spirit, but scatter in the power of Jesus as well, that they would change their community by the work of Christ in them. Lead us in our study, God. We ask the Spirit to be our true teacher, and we look forward to hearing what you have to say. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name, and all of God's people said, amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to turn to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. We are making our way verse by verse through the gospel 
of Mark over the last six months or so. We've just been um, slowly making our way through. Here we are in chapter 10. We'll pick up this morning where we left off last week in Mark chapter 10. I'll start reading in verse 17, and I'm going to read through verse 31. Uh, For those of you who may have a digital version of the Bible, I'm preaching from the English Standard Version. If you want to select that translation so you can follow maybe a little bit more directly with me. But Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 17. And as he, Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. And Jesus looking at him, loved him. And said to him, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see, we've left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This is the word of God for us today. And there's a lot here. There's a lot here. As a matter of fact, there's more here than I'm going to be able to touch on this morning. Some of it we've already covered in previous messages. Some are related to even the next text for next Sunday. So I'm not going to be able to cover every single detail in this text There's some things that really stand out to me. As a matter of fact, I was thinking as I studied for this text that over the last 30 years, I have attended more evangelism trainings than I can remember. And I need you to know this. None of them have recommended taking the approach it seems Jesus takes with the man in this passage. This, this account's known as the uh, story of the rich young ruler. And so it doesn't drive you nuts why we call him the rich young ruler. It's because he is found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And Matthew tells us that he was young. Luke tells us that he was some sort of ruler. And our text shows us that he was rich, a rich young ruler. And here he comes up to Jesus. He kneels down before him and he shows a sign of respect in doing so and asks him a question. Good teacher, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? So far, so good. 
I mean, imagine if you had just taken evangelism class, you go home and your neighbor comes up to you, kneels down in front of you, which might be odd for some of your neighbors, but then says, what do I need to do to go to heaven? What do I need to do to be saved? That's like set, spike, match, right? Well, Jesus responds in a way that seems almost inexplicable. If you've ever attended evangelism training, or even if you just know the gospel, he brings up the commandments. Then he tells the guy, hey, go sell everything you've got. Give it to the poor. Follow me. You'll be good then. Sounds like Jesus is saying we have to earn our salvation by the good works we do and take on a vow of poverty and give our stuff to the poor to be right with God. And I've got to tell you something. I didn't just attend evangelism training. I attended a lot of theology classes as well, and that's not the gospel. So the question becomes, what's going on? What's Jesus doing here? Well, here's what Jesus is doing. I actually skipped over a passage of scripture that's really critical for us to understand this encounter with the rich young ruler. As I mentioned a minute ago, this story is found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And every time this story occurs, It's preceded with another story, with another account, another detail that's short and straight to the point. And it comes before every time this encounter with the rich young ruler. It's kind of like the preface that lays a groundwork for understanding what follows with Jesus and this rich young man. And so skip back up to the verses I intentionally skipped, verses 13 through 16, and see how Jesus lays the groundwork for us to understand what we'll look at the rest of the time together in the rich young ruler. Verse 13 says this, they were bringing their children to him that he might touch them and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me, do not hinder them for, look at this, to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, to all y'all, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on on them. Do you see what he's doing? In verse 14, he says this, the kingdom of God belongs to people who are like children. Then verse 15, he says, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. This is so critical. It's so foundation. You can't enter it unless you receive the kingdom like a little child. Then in verse 16, he drives his point home even further by going around to each child and picking that child up by his own strength, holding that child in his arms and by his volition, by his initiation, blessing them by his grace and not because of anything those kids have done. And here's what Jesus is doing. He's plainly giving us the key to entering into eternal life, inheriting salvation and God's kingdom. And what he says in those verses sets up everything in the rest of our text. It actually gives us our big idea for this morning. Here's today's big idea. Jesus gives the kingdom of God to those who trust him in childlike faith. Jesus gives the kingdom of God to those who trust him in childlike faith faith. Friend, let me make this abundantly clear because Jesus makes this abundantly clear. We don't earn our salvation through our good works. We don't buy our way into heaven by selling all our earthly possessions and giving them to the poor. We have to receive the kingdom of God like a gift 
through childlike faith in dependence on Jesus. And you need to know that. That's not just the teaching of verses 13 through 16. That's the plain gospel of the entire Bible. Let me show you a couple verses. Romans 6, 23 says this. The wages or payment of sin is death, but the what? What's that next phrase? The free gift of God is eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. How do we inherit eternal life? We receive it as a free gift of grace through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says this. For by grace, that's the unearned, unmerited, undeserved favor of God. It's when God treats you like you're his favorite, even though you don't deserve it. The unmerited favor of God, by grace you've been saved Through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works. Are we saved as a result of our works? How do you know that? Because the Bible just said it, right? Yeah, it's that simple. So that no one may boast, so that pride would never enter our heart. And we would say as we enter the kingdom, look what I've done. But we would fall on our knees before Jesus on that day and say, Jesus, like we just sang, great are you, Lord. Guys, the Bible's very clear. Jesus says it even here in Mark chapter 10. The only way for us to enter into the blessings of the kingdom of God, to be saved from our sin, to inherit heaven and eternal life, the only way for us to be saved is for us to trust in Jesus to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, to receive by his power and his grace a gift, the gift of his life, his death, his resurrection, and all of the blessing of God's kingdom that comes through that. And Jesus says this, being like a child is the perfect picture of that kind of faith. Just think about it. Children are small and weak. Did you know that? All right, I'll teach you a few things this morning then. Children are small and weak, and they don't contribute to their own well-being at all. If you haven't had kids, let me let you in on something. As much as I love my own children, and I even miss the years when they were babies. Okay, this last Monday, I was overcome with some emotion. Emily sent me some pictures of our children when they were small. I was thinking about the fact that Logan graduates high school this year, and then Mia graduates high school next year, two years. Two of our kids will be out of the house. I'm starting to get choked up just thinking about it. And I said to Emily through tears, but we didn't even know the last time that we held them was going to be the last time. You know what I'm talking about? I had no idea they were going to grow up and I wasn't going to hold them. I loved those years. But the one thing about those years you need to know going into it that I can tell you about all of my babies and all of your babies is this. Babies are constantly in need. They literally, literally can't do anything for themselves. I remember telling them at some times, you literally can't do anything for yourself, can you? I know you're three months old. When are you going to get a job and start contributing around the house? This is getting expensive. You're going through diapers like it's a joke on me. You can't do anything but bring your need to the table. And here's what's even more frustrating. For a while, they don't even try to contribute, right? Like They're not even giving it a go. As a matter of fact, one of the things that children learn before they walk, 
before they crawl, before they talk. You know, one of the first things that a baby learns to do before it does anything like that that could actually help it do something else. You know what they learn? They learn to reach. In their development, they can reach before they can talk, before they can crawl, before they can walk. They reach out for mom, for dad. And you know that before they can reach, they actually learn to do something else? They look and cry. It's the first thing they do. Before they can even reach, they just look around for mom. And they cry till she comes. My kids would cry in their bed. I'd go, it didn't matter to them. Who am I? Just some guy showed up. I want my mom. I couldn't say it. Their eyes said it all. I want mom. Nothing else would do. It was the first thing my child learned to do for themselves. Isn't that interesting? It's interesting. The first thing we learn to do for ourselves is to learn to depend on someone else to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. Isn't that cool? Here's the first thing you learn to do. Here's the first thing you learn to do as a human to be a human who gets things done. You reach. You learn how to depend on someone else to do for you what you innately know. And no one told you this. You just knew it as a human, as a baby human. You knew you couldn't do for yourself what needed to be done. And Jesus says that this is the key to the kingdom of God. Enjoying all of the blessings of Jesus and all that he gives in his great gift of salvation is this learning to depend on someone else to do for you what you can't do for yourself. And listen, spiritual maturity, Jesus is even teaching us, looks different than physical and social maturity. What I mean by that is we're actually supposed to physically and socially mature to the place that we become responsible for ourselves and even become responsible for caring for others. Right, moms and dads? To your growing children. But that's not the way it is with Jesus. He says you have to be a child, stay a child, remain as a child in a certain sense. There is never supposed to be a time in your walk with Jesus when you're anything but a child in faith in a certain sense. That doesn't mean you remain immature in your Christianity. It means you never graduate from the time that your innate desire is to depend on Jesus to do for you what you can't do for yourself. You need Jesus to pick you up and hold you by his power. You need Jesus to carry you into the kingdom or guess what? You will not enter. At the most basic level, childlike faith is believing. I can't, but Jesus can. Guys, that's Christianity 101 and you never get to another level because there is no other level. I can't, but Jesus can. And that's what Jesus is driving home in this passage. That's actually the whole point of every verse I just read. Verse 26 and 27, near the end, after the rich young ruler walks away, look at what he says. They were exceedingly astonished, the disciples. They'd watched this encounter. They heard what Jesus had to say. They were astonished and said to him, then who could be saved? 
And Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. We'll come back to this in a minute. But how can anyone be saved? Jesus is nailing down a point here. And he's saying this. We need to come to the realization that it is impossible if it depends on men. That's another way of saying being saved is impossible if it depends on you or me or anyone but God. We can't do it. But God graciously has made a way for the impossible to become possible. Why? Because God so loved the world that he gave his son, Jesus, who was God in the flesh, to live the life we have failed to live, a perfect and obedient life in every way, to die the death we should have died as a payment for our sin at the cross and to be raised again from death to life so he could raise us up from death to a brand new kind of life. Through Jesus, God has made the impossible possible. And the way we enjoy the blessings of the life that only Jesus can give is through childlike faith, depending on Jesus to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. That's the point of this whole passage. And that is the key to understand what Jesus is doing with this rich young ruler. Matthew and and Luke actually make it seem more clear than Mark does that the rich young ruler, I believe, was standing around in the crowd when Jesus was saying, unless you become like a child and receive the kingdom like a child, you can't enter it. And then he sets those children down and that rich young ruler has the audacity to run up to him and says, before you go, Jesus, I've got a question. What do I need to do? What do I need to do? And so what Jesus is doing is exposing the fact this guy doesn't have childlike faith. He's not willing to become like a child. See, Jesus isn't contradicting himself and saying you can earn your salvation by your good works or you can enter the kingdom because you're good enough in yourself. What he's doing is exposing and pressing in on a heart that does not have childlike faith. Here's what I want to do in the remainder of our time together. I want to see three important characteristics we learn about childlike faith that Jesus exposes through his interaction with this rich young ruler. So let's take them one at a time. Number one. Childlike faith acknowledges who we are. And I could say who we really are. Look at verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, so he sets these children down after having just said, you got to become like one of these children and rest in my power, depend on me and receive the kingdom. A man ran up to him. Don't go yet, Jesus. I've got a question. He knelt before him and asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The very first thing this guy asked Jesus is actually a question that reveals a lot about how he sees himself. He asks what he needs to do to inherit eternal life. Listen to Matthew's account of that that interaction. Matthew 19, 16, Matthew says, Behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Notice the focus here. It's on his own work, his good deed. He's like this, Jesus, give, give me one thing. Matter of fact, give me the one big thing, the big, most difficult thing. I'll do it so I can earn eternal life. His heart's proud, it's self-reliant. That's the exact opposite of childlike faith. And Jesus then presses in on his pride by what he says next. Verse 19 of our text says, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Do not defraud, honor your father and mother. You know, you know where those come from? The Ten Commandments. Those are six 
of the Ten Commandments in the law of God. Interesting thing, all six of those revolve around that heading to love our neighbor as ourself. And so he takes one component, love your neighbor as yourself, breaks it down in those six of the Ten Commandments, and he asks the guy, hey, what about those? Why would Jesus do that? Why would he bring that up? It's not because he's trying to give him a way to earn salvation. The answer is actually found in Romans 7. Romans 7 tells us this about the law of God. Verse 12 and 13. It says, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death in me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. You see what he's saying here? He's saying God gave us the commandments, yes, because they show us what's good and right and holy, and so that we would know that we have not been able to perfectly do what is good and right and holy. I've shared this illustration with you before, but since I only have like three illustrations, let me share this one with you again, okay? Imagine you were the world's worst driver, How could I get you to know you're the world's worst driver besides having my kids ride in the car with you and tell you, man, you're the worst. That's how I know I'm the worst. But anyhow, how can we do this? Well, imagine that I put you in a big, empty parking lot that had no lines, just a big, huge, empty parking lot. You're the only car there. And we go, hey, show us your skill, man. You might get in that car. You might drive around. You might actually be swerving all over the place and slightly out of control. But because there are no lines in the parking lot, you might not know just how swervy your driving is. But then imagine that I go ahead of you and I I put these lines down and make a course with those lines that you've got to go through perfectly in a certain amount of time in order to prove your skill as a driver. Those lines would give you a test in a sense. They would lay out, here's what you have to do to be a great driver, to prove you're a great driver, but they also would do something else. They would give you an indicator that every time you crossed the line, you were showing you're not a great driver. You, you, would, you would test your skill and every time you crossed the line, you'd see you don't quite measure up. Now think about it this way. The lines would not make you a terrible driver. The lines would reveal that you're a terrible driver. You with me? That's how it is with the law. God gave the commandments and yes, they're good. And they show what God's good, holy desires are, but he gave them so we would know we don't meet the standard. We wouldn't know we were sinners if God didn't draw the lines to show us. So let me give a little test to you. Have you ever in your entire life taken anything that didn't rightfully belong to you? Anyone? All right, you just broke the eighth commandment of stealing. All right, have you ever said anything that wasn't completely true? Yes or no? Okay, some of you are liars because you said no. (laughs) And you just now broke one. Man, crossing the line. That's the ninth commandment of not bearing false witness. Have you ever wanted something that belonged to someone else? And and you wanted it in a way that instead of being glad that person had it, you were kind of sad. You really wanted it to belong to you. Have you ever done that? Yeah. You broke the 10th commandment. All right. I'm 0 for 3. Okay. I'm 0 for 3. Strike out. I'm done. 
How about you? I don't know. How did the guy in the story respond? Jesus gives him six of the Ten Commandments, not just three. How does he respond? Verse 20. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. This guy's something else, isn't he? (laughs) Bro, you got a little something on your nose there, man. You need to back down. Instead of seeing himself as a broken sinner, he says, hey, Jesus, I'm good. (laughs) I mean, matter of fact, I love hearing you talk about that because I've been doing those things since I was born. Just kind of popped out this way. I I was really good. Like I, I, I did it. All it. All the time. I'm just that kind of guy. As a matter of fact, here's what he's saying. Jesus, I've done all that so well. I need you to give me more. What what other thing? What one good thing? Give me more. Do you see what's going on in this guy? His pride is keeping him from childlike faith because he thinks he can do it. He thinks he can earn God's approval. So he will not trust in Jesus. You know why? Because he thinks he has every reason to trust in himself. And our pride and self-reliance keeps us from childlike faith. And that's no small thing because without childlike faith, Jesus says we will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Childlike faith acknowledges we're broken, we're small, we're weak, we're sinful. And before we move on, guys, I just want to encourage you in this this morning. Because I know when I talk about that, there are some people who have walked through a season of life where you have encountered your sin And your weakness and your brokenness in a way that has been excruciatingly difficult to see and come to grips with. Through failure, you have been convinced of something that's really hard. And it's that you can't do it. You, You can't be a great Christian. You can't put your life back together. You can't make your life what it should be. You can't be good enough to restore your broken family. You can't be good enough to restore your broken relationship with God. And there are some people who encounter that and they haven't heard the truth about Jesus in a way that makes them realize that is not cause to despair. That is the first step of God working in your life to bring you to childlike faith. God is doing something in you when you are in the place of seeing your brokenness, your smallness, your inability firsthand. He's doing something in you to convince you of the first thing about childlike faith. Namely, I can't do it. So friend, if you enter this room this morning and you are about to give up on Christianity because you realize you can't do it, there's a very good chance you've never actually encountered real Christianity. Because real Christianity isn't the message that you can do it. That's Oprah, not Jesus. (laughs) And when you are to that place, do not despair, friend. Do not despair in your smallness, your weakness, your sin. Turn to Jesus. I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. Let's keep moving on. Faith, childlike faith acknowledges who we are. But number two, childlike faith values God's kingdom. Look at verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have, give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Jesus keeps pressing in on this guy's heart. 
And remember, this guy has just claimed to have perfectly fulfilled the law that sums up loving our neighbors ourselves. But Jesus calls him then, literally, to put his money where his mouth is, right? Oh, you love your neighbors yourself perfectly all the time for all of your life. How about you love your neighbor enough to give him all your money, right? And what happens in his heart? He's disheartened because it says he has a lot of stuff. What are we seeing here? What we're seeing is he doesn't love his neighbors as much as he loves his money. But it's worse than that. He doesn't love God's kingdom as much as he loves his money. Notice Jesus isn't calling him to live forever without wealth. As a matter of fact, verse 21, he says, you give this up, you follow me, you're going to have treasure in heaven. At the end of the text, he actually says, no disciple, no follower of me will ever give up anything for my sake and the sake of the gospel and the kingdom without me giving it back a hundred times more. In this life, yes, with persecution, but in the age to come, you'll receive multiplied more than you'll ever give up as you follow me. The guy, though, doesn't believe Jesus He doesn't believe that the promise of heavenly treasure is as good as the promise of earthly pleasure. You hear that? Because we need to hear that. He doesn't believe that the promise of heavenly treasure is as good as the promise of earthly pleasure. So he makes a trade right here in his heart. This rich guy would rather be rich in this world and miss out on the kingdom of God than to be poor in this world and have all that Jesus offers. He says, sorry, Jesus, I just can't follow you because you're not as valuable to me as all of my stuff. He's bought into a lie, guys. He's bought into the lie that the stuff of this world, what this world values is what matters most, what satisfies, what really pleases, what gives real meaning. That's why Jesus says what he says after the rich man walks away. Verse 23, and Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his word, but Jesus said to them again, children, And I love he uses that phrase with them, right? Because they've become like children and trusting in Jesus. Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said, then who could be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it's impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. There there are lots of stories and theories about the camel going through the eye of the needle. I'm sure you've heard some of them. As a matter of fact, about 800 years after Mark was written, a legend emerged that there was a gate in the city of Jerusalem known as the eye of the needle. But I just need you to know, as I was studying through the week, I was trying to get some evidence of that, and there really is no substantial evidence anywhere near the time of Jerusalem's existence as as the old city before its destruction in 70 AD, that there was ever a gate known as the eye of the needle. Uh, You want to know what I think? I'm glad you asked, because I'll tell you. I think that it's really likely that Jesus was talking about, wait for it, wait for it, the eye of a needle. (laughs) I didn't go to seminary, guys, but I came there. I got there. He's talking about an eye of a needle. You know why? Because he's making a point. And you know what the point is? It's impossible. He says it's impossible for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And what he's saying is this. 
Not that rich people can't go to heaven, but that we all need, because that's really the disciples' response, was then how can anyone be saved? And he's saying we all need a fundamental change of our heart in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. We need new desires. We need new priorities. We need something to happen in us and in our hearts that would see Jesus and his kingdom as so wonderful and desirable and and satisfying that if it meant that we had to lose everything in this life to have Jesus in his kingdom because of what we believe about Jesus, we'd gladly make the trade. When my kids were little, and I know I keep going back to my kids, but Jesus brought up childlike faith, so it's not wrong for me to talk about my kids. When they were little, you need to know this. If you're, if you're getting ready to have kids, you need to know this. Um, my children did not value anything that was valuable. They would throw my cell phone. They didn't care how much it cost. They would ruin my clothes without remorse. I had so much baby spit up on the shoulders of my shirts I just wore it as a badge of honor like I was a good dad. And that's gross. I don't know why I told you that. They couldn't care less about the stuff of my life in this world. They couldn't care less about the size of our house. They didn't even care whether or not our car had heated seats, right? Not just because we lived in Florida. They were always heated. But they just didn't care. When they needed something and they were fussy... I would try to appease them if I was at home alone with them by throwing every toy known to man at them, trying to get them to cry. Every rattle, every blanket, every stuffed animal. Do you want to know what would satisfy my babies when they were crying? You want to know? You want to know? I'll tell you. Mom. They wanted mom. I really mean this. You could put a million dollars besides mama and they choose mama every time. You know why? Because as children, they had a different value system than the rest of this world. They valued mama more than they valued everything else this world had to offer. And I mean that. And mama deserved it. She'd earned the right. And Jesus is saying, we need that kind of heart, that kind of change in us, In order to be a part of God's kingdom. That kind of heart change, Jesus says. It's not something we manufacture. We can't make it happen. We need a miraculous word of God. A work of his grace. Just think about that. Think what it would take for you to leave this room today. And sell everything you own to follow Jesus. What would it take for you to go straight home today. Put your house up on the market. For cash only. Everything included, then accept the first cash offer, which, by the way, is always a low baller. That first cash offer. And then turn around and give all that cash to the first homeless person you saw. What would it take for you to do that? I can tell you what it would take a miracle. I'm not kidding, even though it's funny. It would take a miracle. I don't know if any of you are going to do that. Because something would happen. I mean, miraculously have to happen. It would take a radical heart change that would make you value Jesus and his kingdom. More than the sum total of all the rest of your stuff. Now, do not take this to be a work 
that replaces faith in Jesus. We're going to struggle till we die with an attachment to the stuff of this world and the value system of this world. Often childlike faith really just starts by saying, Jesus, I want to want you more than I want the stuff of this world. And I need you to work in my heart because only you can do the impossible in me. I want to want you more than I want this world's system and all that it offers. You might need to just begin by just saying, Jesus, I admit that I love my stuff so much that I really do admit it would need to be a miracle that would make me walk away today and sell it all to follow you. You need to do that in me. Don't make this a work to earn salvation, but make it a cry of your heart that lets you know that if Jesus doesn't do in you what only Jesus can do, you can't do it for yourself. I can't help but wonder what would have happened if this had been the response of the rich young ruler. If he had just seen Jesus as the one who could change his heart and said, Jesus, that's so hard for me to hear because I love my stuff so much. Will you help me? Will you help me? Rather than walking away disheartened and saying, I can't do that. I won't do that. What if he said, Jesus, I want to want you that much. I want to desire you and your kingdom that much. And I'm struggling with that. How many of us need a heart change that miraculously changes the way we view our stuff? The way all the hooks of our earthly goods have dug into our lives in a way that feel like we couldn't extract ourselves if we tried. And value Jesus as though Jesus were more valuable. You see, that brings me to the final thing about childlike faith. The reason why we value the kingdom and Jesus, who's the king, is number three, childlike faith embraces Jesus for who he is. Let's just spend a couple moments as we finish on this idea. I'll show you what I mean. Verse 17. As he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, good teacher, What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. See that? The guy calls Jesus good teacher. Jesus is not correcting him. He does press in. He's like, I'm really interested to know why you called me good. Because there's no one who's good but God. So, hey man, what do you think? What are you talking about? And notice what the young man then says next when he addresses Jesus. Verse 20. And he says to him, teacher. You guys see that? What did he drop? The word good. He dropped the word good. He's willing to see Jesus as all kinds of things. A good moral teacher, a great example, a a source maybe of counsel or wisdom, but he isn't willing to see Jesus as God. And that's critical in this text. You know why? Because who is it that makes entering the kingdom possible for People like us. Verse 27, Jesus looked at them and said, with man it's impossible, but with God, all things are possible with God. Can I connect the dots for you really quickly here? I'll do the math so you don't have to. Jesus is God. He is the one who makes possible what's otherwise impossible. And childlike faith believes that about Jesus. So childlike faith stops trusting in itself and stops treasuring the stuff of this world and learns how to do the first thing we learned how to do as being human and just reaches out. Jesus, I believe you can do What's impossible for me because I believe that you are God in the flesh. You are the one and only God 
who came to this world out of love for me. And because I see and believe you that way, I treasure you. The king of heaven would come to this earth and die on the cross for me. I treasure you, Jesus. You are my God. And so I worship. I show worth by valuing, treasuring you. Childlike faith believes Jesus to be God. Treasures Jesus as God. Trusts in Jesus as God to do what only he can do to make the impossible possible. And friend, let me just share a couple of things. He makes it possible for us to be forgiven of our sins and restored to God the Father. He makes it possible for us to inherit kingdom itself and everything that belongs to God in heaven and earth. He makes it possible for us to have a life of joy and peace, even in hardship and suffering. He makes it possible for us to live in a way that fulfills God's commands and swims against the cultural current of a world gone mad. Don't you know the world's gone mad? He makes it possible for us to one day become just like him and live forever in God's kingdom. Jesus makes the impossible possible. And that brings us all the way back to the very beginning in our big idea. Jesus gives the kingdom and all of the blessings that come along with the kingdom of God to those who trust him in childlike faith. So the question for the day is this. Are you Trusting Jesus in childlike faith. By acknowledging you are who you are. Broken, small, sinful. By valuing Christ and his kingdom. The way that Christ and his kingdom should be valuable. Named, namely, more than all the stuff and treasure of this world, and by embracing Jesus for who he is, your Savior and your God. Are you trusting in Jesus in childlike faith? Would you bow your heads? Let's enter into a time of prayer and reflection. Perhaps you have never placed your faith and trust in Jesus. Right now, in this moment, I want to encourage you to call on Jesus. Acknowledge your smallness and your sin your inability. And just in childlike faith, call on Jesus to save you. To do for you what you can't do and save you in every way you need saved. From the penalty of sin, from the power and patterns of sin in your life, from the brokenness and darkness of this world, call on Jesus. Claim his promise that he will save all who call on him. And perhaps you're trusting in Jesus and the spirit of Christ is highlighting in your heart a place where though you believe you're struggling maybe with unbelief, maybe in pride you keep thinking that you've got to keep earning or Meriting something from God and that's not trusting in Jesus holy. Would you just confess that? Look to Jesus. Maybe in honesty, the Holy Spirit's allowing you to see more and more clearly how much you treasure the stuff of this world in a way that is not how you treasure Jesus. Would you ask him to miraculously change your heart?
And would you worship him? Just treasure him in this moment. Say, thank you, Jesus, for doing for me what I can't do for myself. You are glorious. You are good. You are great. Father, we thank you for Christ. Thank you for his sufficiency, his merit, his work. And Lord, we confess that this world is filled with distractions, with things that cause us or stir us or lure us away from seeing Jesus as the most beautiful, wonderful, desirable thing in all of creation. Lord, help us. Help us to value most what's most valuable, namely Christ that we would want him and desire him above all else. Help us to trust, Lord, to trust Jesus, that the reflex of our heart would be like, like it was when we were babies, that we wouldn't even attempt to do it ourselves. We learn how to cry out and look and reach for Jesus in faith. Father, be exalted, be glorified in our lives. It's Christ himself lives in us through faith and does in us what only Christ can do. Lord, we ask you, make us kids today and make it so that we never grow up. May we just stay kids, safe in the arms of Jesus. We ask it all in Jesus' name, amen.